Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. All right, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Good Morning New York. At this hour, title insurance protects real estate owners and lenders against any property loss or damage they might experience because of liens, encumbrances, or defects in the title to the property. Each title insurance policy is subject to specific terms, conditions, and exclusions. Simply stated, the title to a piece of property is the evidence that the owner is in lawful possession of that property. We will break all of that down today with a title uh, title expert here in the studio with me. Also at this hour, in a city packed to the gills with triplex penthouses, sprawling lofts, and charming brownstones, it seems that finding a great home should be as easy or simple as ordering dinner delivery uh, from your local favorite place. Any seasoned New Yorker will tell you, however, that finding a place in the city that's as good as it seems on screen is not so easy. But first, I'd like to welcome my listeners in the United States and around the world. I am Vince Rocco, and this is Good Morning New York Real Estate. You can find us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. You can email us here at the show or at vrocco at halstead.com. My guest today is Berto Antoniano. Right. I said that right. Wow. Here we go. He began his career as a real estate broker and loan officer in his native Boston after achieving Rookie of the Year Diamond Club member status and being ranked in the top 10% out of 75,000 executives nationwide. Luis uh, Berto was tapped to open and manage three offices for his company in the Boston area. Following his dream to move to New York City, he pivoted to title insurance and to the real estate business where he quickly found success working closely with his brokers, lenders, and attorney uh, clients and connections. He works for MIT National Land Services, which is a national title insurance uh, title agency with offices at One Penn Plaza here in Manhattan. They represent some of the nation's leading underwriters and are licensed to do business in all 50 states. MIT was designed around two very simple goals, to deliver the finest quality title services and do everything to make the client experience as easy and user-friendly as possible. Their diverse team of veteran title professionals is committed to meeting those goals every day. Good morning. Wow, good morning. You did your research. <laughs> yeah, you know, but what, what's interesting to me is, I mean, I know you are successful and I know you've had a great career, but, you know, oh, thank you. but some of these things, a Rookie of the Year Diamond Club member being ranked top 10 out of 75,000 executives, you are still incredibly young. Tell us how someone does this. <laughs> I think, uh, listen, through discipline, right? I always have a, I always have a plan. I always take action, uh, always reading uh, my affirmations, setting myself goals, and just doing the same thing over and over again every day, right? And slightly making tweaks to perfect my my system. So one of the things we like to to, to talk about on the show is is the millennial uh, ah. age that we are all living in. And so I look around the room here, and all of you guys are, I guess, fitting Baby into basis. that category. Yeah. But it's interesting to me that you know you find success at such young ages, where you know in my day or in the past, you worked for years and you worked for a long time to get to certain you know, areas of success or levels of success. And I just love seeing, you know, young people in this age of, you know, uh, confusion or whatever else you want to call it, really succeed and do well. But let's talk a little bit about title insurance, which is why you're here today. So what exactly is title insurance? When a property is financed, bought, or sold, a record 
of that transaction is generally filled, uh, filed rather, in public archives. Likewise, mm-hmm. records of other events that may affect the ownership of property like liens or levies are also achieved. So how does title insurance differ from regular insurance or what people think is just standard insurance policies. Right. Well, I'm, I'm going to try to make this as fun as possible because title insurance is definitely not the sexiest part of real estate. All right. But like uh, other insurances, for example, uh, car insurance, life insurance, you're paying a monthly premium for something that could potentially happen in the future. Right. Whereas title insurance is a one time premium that is protecting the buyer against anything that may have happened in the past. Right. And it's paid at the time of closing and it protects you for as long as you own the property or your heirs own the property. All right. So what 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 does it actually cover? So, you know, when a first time buyer goes through <clears throat> the experience of purchasing their first home, their yeah. first apartment, whatever, you know, their attorney uh, and their broker starts talking about this title insurance stuff. And I remember when I bought my first home, you know, a long, long time ago. I was like, well, what is that, and what do I need yeah. it for, and what does it cover? So, what is it? What what is it actually? Break it down for us, Berto. What does it actually right. mean? <laughs> it covers a variety of things, but essentially, what it does is it offers you financial protection, right? In, in case you have to litigate or investigate or have any court proceedings, but it's protecting you against any fraudulent activity, uh, any forgery, improper deeds or wills, uh, and something even as simple as like a parking ticket. Right, it can be uh, placed against your property, and we see that uh, pretty often, actually. Actually, that happened to me. I, I was buying a co-op on the Upper East Side. Swear to you, um, <laughs> in the '90s, I can't remember. End of the '90s, and my attorney called me one day and says, "We have a little bit of a problem." So, of course, I'm thinking, "Well, what's the problem?" He said, uh-huh. "Well, you have two parking tickets that you never paid." I said, <laughs> "And how does that relate to buying an apartment?" You know, because yeah. we're trying to get. <laughs> things moving along. You're like, thanks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he said, you better get your tail down to the DMV and pay those tickets right away and get a clearance receipt, et cetera, et cetera, because you're not going to clear title. You're not going to be able to buy this apartment. And I, I thought he was joking. I said, no, that's right. Two parking tickets. I don't even remember when I got them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that was an, an excursion, quite frankly, but it had to be done. I'm not yeah. surprised. You look so suspicious. <laughs> the, the I just thought you got to be kidding me. Yeah. So s- things as simple as a parking ticket. What about, you know, major disasters levied against a property? How do you clear those? I mean, uh, like uh, what? Unpaid income taxes, whatever. federal tax liens, everything. Something yeah. pretty large. Uh, well, we'll have to, we just need proof that this was paid or that was paid or something is cleared. If there's a judgment, we just need some sort of proof which would be gathered by the attorney and they you know, simply fax it over to us, email it to us. Uh, we have our clearance department review it. And if we feel that it's clearing this exception, then we'll cross it off our list, right? There's conditions on a title report on a Schedule B similar to a loan, right? I, like I was when just going to say similar loan, to a financial yeah, loan. Yeah, there's, okay. there's conditions on it, and you have to clear the conditions. Uh, and once we've uh, once they've met everything, we give you the clear to close. What are the different types of policies that are that are out there for, you know, uh, the consumer, for, for, you know, the buyer out there looking to buy something? And, you know, we go again through this title insurance. What are the types of policies that are available out there? I mean, there's really only two types. There's an owner's premium and a lender's premium. Okay. Right? And that's uh, like the owner's premium protects the buyer whenever they're purchasing the property. And if there's financing, then the lender's premium protects the lender. You know, if you're referring to extended coverage or eagle coverage, uh, that is very, very, very rare. Typically, it's just a standard title insurance policy. 
take us through the process of, you know, when you get a loan or when a buyer, you know, needs to buy something and, mm-hmm. and the, the attorney goes and does a title search, how long does that typically take? Depends on the county, right? Okay. If, uh, for example, we're doing Brooklyn, we'll get uh, our searches back in a couple of days. It goes to our reading department. They scan through the whole entire abstract, all the searches. Uh, we'll uh, type up the report and send it out. So it could be, isn't it an emergency? If you need it pretty quick, we'll do it in two, three, four business days. But if you're doing uh, like Long, um, sorry, Long Island or New Jersey, it takes a lot longer. How about New York County here in, in Manhattan? <laughs> um, probably three to five business days. We can probably get it done. You know, but a lot of these systems are still paper systems. Absolutely. Yeah, and it takes a long time. I wanted to ask you how you actually do the research. I mean, are you looking, you know, through files of, of, of paper or are you looking, you know, through online, uh, you know, resources? I mean, what is it that you're actually going into to get this information? Right. Well, it's it's a 40-year search, actually, in New York. So we search 40 years. 40 years. Yeah, wow. New Jersey, 60 years. So we're basically looking at a chronological timeline of the title and ownership of the property, searching through uh, tax searches, judgment searches, lien searches, uh, and putting together a title abstract. Who pays for this? The buyer. Actually, it's the buyer in New York, right? But in some counties and some states, it's actually split amongst the buyer and seller. Uh, a lot of counties in Florida, the seller pays for it. Uh, but New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, it's the buyer. And what does it cost typically? So that's a loaded question, right? Everyone always asks me, well, what's your price? Uh, we're all the same price, okay. right? It's regulated by the state. Uh, no matter what company you go through, uh, we're going to be the same exact price. What it's based on is the purchase price and the loan amount. Depends on the county sometimes, the property type. I've had people ask me, you know, so if my lender gets title insurance for the mortgage, why do mm-hmm. I need a separate policy for myself? So help uh, us understand the difference between both, if, well, or if there is any. Well, the lender's policy is only protecting the lender, right? And it's only protecting you for as much as the loan is worth, right? So if you're buying a million-dollar property and you're taking out an $800,000 loan, the lender's premium is only protecting the lender up to those 800000 It's not protecting the owner at all whatsoever. What about, um, have you ever experienced a situation where, you know, you're trying to clear title or you're trying to, you know, get the file done and you just cannot because there are so many issues with this particular property? Have you, I have not in my years in Manhattan seen anything, but, you know, once in a while, like I said, I personally got a call because of two parking tickets, but clearly that took a day and it got fixed. But have you ever seen a situation where you just cannot clear title? Uh, yeah, and how absolutely. often does it happen? I mean, it's it's pretty rare, but uh, I, I've I've built my business off of uh, networking with brokers, right? Which is a little different. And I always ask brokers, I'm like, hey, reach out to me. It's good to have someone on your side to to check something before you're submitting an offer on a property that may seem a little funky. And uh, a friend of mine uh, had reached out to me and said, hey, can you look into this? And it seemed that the owner who was deceased had transferred the property to his daughter. However, the daughter. Uh, had a power of attorney had assigned it over to herself. And you can't technically assign a property to yourself through power of attorney, right? So we will not see that as an actual transaction. So she can't sell the property. I wanted to ask you about that. That You're, you're reading my mind. So yeah. someone someone has died, someone is deceased, and, yeah. and the family inherits the property. But, you know, the title is a complete mess based on some things that the you know the the dead person <laughs> lack of a yeah. way to explain it has created or caused yeah. how does that get how does that get fixed if he, that this person is no longer around 
So there's, there's. I mean, a, I inherit a property, yeah. say from a parent, and yeah. and I don't understand what's happening until the title person says to me, "Oh my God, this is a big problem. The, my relative is dead. How am I going to fix that?" Well, it should go to all the heirs, right? But there's right. also, what if there's a will, right? And the two-year mark is a magic mark. So let's say that uh, I passed uh, my property off to Ryan in my will because I love Ryan oh, Garson. He's a man, right? However, he doesn't make claim to my property within two years. After those two years, that will, not necessarily null and void, but it won't be effective anymore. It'll go to the remaining heirs of the property. So you snooze, you lose, Ryan, and... Now it's going to uh, some long-lost child that I don't know if I have yet. Well, that's my point. All right, we have to leave it there and take a break. You are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Network. Don't go away. We will be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com It's not easy to make it big in New York City. It's even harder to sustain that success for decades. However, two teams have defied those odds due to their formulas for success. Both have all-star rosters performing at the top of their game. Each have an undying commitment to greatness, a willingness to evolve, superior training programs, and ownership that invests heavily in their products. It only seemed natural for the world's most valuable sports brand to partner with Halstead, a market leader in the New York metro area, and now proudly serving as the official luxury real estate firm of the New York Yankees. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. Full House today. Peru Brownback from Compass, Sean Peak from Compass, Ryan Garson from Halstead Property, Matthew Cohen from Core Real Estate, and Noah Kaplan from Nest Seekers International. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. So I have, a, I have a quick question. So how has open houses been for you all this past weekend? Busy. Yeah, really busy. I mean, slammed busy. Interesting. And the reason I asked that is because at two of my properties, it was like zero dead. Where? Which is amazing. Midtown East and uh, Midtown West. The two huh. different properties. But the properties that you're selling, aren't they above two million? They have left two million, above two million. One right? is 1.1 1. 1 million in Midtown West and the others are two million and up. Yeah. Yeah. I, 
If I'm talking to everyone, they say that above two million is just slow, really slow. We get a compass. We get like an open house metrics. Yeah, same here. Thing every every week. Um, So all the agents basically put you know their traffic into a graph, and uh, yeah, like you're saying, Matt. uh, between one and two million has been extremely busy, and yeah. I've actually lost two apartments in the past week uh, on bidding wars. So mm-hmm. I mean, it's yeah. definitely active. Yeah, Brooklyn, yeah, like I have, Brooklyn is very, very active. Yeah. It's on fire. Yeah, yeah. like I have, I have seven listings, and five of them went to contract in the last two weeks. So yeah, like, no, there's there's lots busy. of activity out there, and we're closing you know lots of stuff ourselves in my business. But it's just like this this past Sunday just seemed odd to me, where it was just eerily quiet. In two listings that generally I get so much traffic, like all the time. Well, was the end of Simha Torah, if anyone's Jewish out there? Basically, like every three weeks, right? So, yeah. There you go, mazel tov. I don't even yeah. know what that means. It's cold outside. Everyone's eating matzo ball soup. Exactly. <laughs> well, listen, today I, I walked out of my apartment house and I was delighted because it was winter and it was cold and I almost went back in to get a jacket to go on top of my suit jacket and I thought you know what just leave it alone because it's probably going to get warmer this afternoon but it felt really humidity's gone finally finally I gotta tell you air conditioning hasn't been on in days and I'm like yeah I haven't heard someone say apartment house in a while <laughs> what can I tell you? Oh, All right, I don't know on. if I've heard that ever. <laughs> ever. Like I think my grandparents used to say it. Thanks, Vince. Old jokes coming early this morning. What's going As on, I keep saying, I'm sassy because I haven't slept. <laughs> I, I sit in a room of millennials, but trust me, I am not one of them. So I can appreciate, you know. <laughs> but apartment house, I hear people use that term all the time. It's like standard. Really, where? No. You where? Yeah, where? I don't know. What do you say? Building? <laughs> no, my favorite is I was I was at a closing yesterday and we were talking about um, how what different people from different parts of the country say, like how they refer to different sayings. And I was like, so you know how people in their families will make fun of the older people in the families and say, so when you get to be 80 or 90, I'm putting you in an old person home or like a retirement home. I joked yesterday that um, I was like, oh, in my family, because we're all from New York, we say we're going to put you in the Schwab house, which is on the upper, it's just a co-op on the Upper West Side. <laughs> 74 74th and West End Avenue, they have it. All right, moving on. Billions of dollars pour into residential real estate in New York City each year, but not all of it comes from New Yorkers purchasing their primary residence. A healthy portion of purchases here in town are made by investors who buy individual units and list them for rent after closing condos, many of which are owned by individual investors, made up more than 11% of Manhattan listings during the first half of 2017. Investors make money from condos in two ways, rental income generated from their tenants and capital gains generated from appreciation in resale value of the unit over time, which oftentimes I have a a hard time convincing people stop just looking at the rental income that you're going to be making. You also need to include that uh, appreciation when you sell it two, three, four, five years down the road. And and most people, most investors don't want to kind of put that into the blender and put that into the mix. And I think they're kind of wrong. So my question to all of you out there in the field, as much as I am, how how are your investors doing today? What What are they thinking? Is it a good time to be investing in Manhattan real estate, Brooklyn real estate, or is it not? I think some of the new development <laughs> units I've sold in the past three or four years are getting ready to sell right now. Mm, same here. Um, you know, they're they're getting close to four percent on their rental income, but they're just you know looking to cash out. So you know, something that sold for five million 
um, that we went into contract in 2013 or 14 is now worth a little over six million. So they're doing well. Both nice. ends. There, there's generally speaking, sorry, there's a there's a there's a low amount of inventory in Brooklyn. Um, you know, as mm-hmm. far as there's just like I think a, there was a I don't know if it was a real deal article that just came out about how there's just this dearth of inventory, and I'm noticing that across the board. You know, as far as like you know, I, I have several projects going on right now. We're just about to sell out at 312 Clifton Place. Uh, we have four units there. Two went into contract very quickly uh, within days of launching. Um, we have two more left. Um, we're listing the other two this week and next week. Um, and there just seems like, you know, as far as the comparables, there are not many. So now, yeah. now, let me ask you something. Sure. So that sounds like good news for the investor because he sure. knows that he's at least going to be renting his unit with limited inventory and potentially maximizing uh, the, the rent number that he can get for that unit, no? Sure. I mean, uh, yeah, it's definitely location, location, location. We're a block away from the G. The L, as you know, is shutting down. So the G, there's actually, they're adding more Gs to transit and they're they're adding more trains to the G line. I think yeah. it's right now it's like seven or eight cars. Now they're adding more cars to the G line. So, um, no, it's, it's uh, as far as, yeah, as far as rental income, um, that's we're very bullish on anything close to transportation, especially the G, the A, and the C, the J, and the M, and the Z. Yeah, I mean, I mean sorry. You, I mean, with the with with regards to all these new developments and units and investors trying to rent, sometimes the rents are artificially suppressed because mm-hmm. all these developments close and you have a bunch of investors go on the market at the same time, which is the case in like Tribeca or maybe you're going to see that in Brooklyn. But that's only a temporary lull, I think. Like to your point, you got to look at the appreciation down the road, and then you're really going to start making your money in like the third, fourth, fifth year. And, you know, and to, to Sean's point, I think that we have to delineate between what type of investor is it a cap rate investor who's trying to get a certain yeah, amount of um, return on their investment immediately, month to month, or if it's somebody who's an equity driven investor. Um, if if someone's an equity driven investor I, right now, my bet is a hundred percent on Brooklyn. However, with the number of actual leasing rental buildings and units going up, depending on what neighborhood, specifically like Park Slope, Prospect Heights area, um, I think there's going to be too much rental property mm-hmm. around yeah. in like the studio one bedroom range. So it really does depend on what kind of investor and what neighborhoods that they're looking at. Yeah, because but I, overall, Brooklyn is hot, hot, hot. Because I've typically gotten the investor who is really only focused on cap rate and no matter mm-hmm. how many times you try to explain as I said at, at the beginning of this you know you need to look at the appreciation over time down the road it's kind of like you know what if I can't get three and a half four five percent on my return immediately it's not going to work for me now you know when I first started in this business not that long ago you you were able to find those those cap rates you have not been able to you know recently and and the statistics here say for example more expensive properties yielded lower returns units priced mm-hmm. under seven hundred fifty thousand dollars yielded a minimum a median three point three percent return whereas units priced over three million yielded only two point six. Studio apartments generated higher yields than larger units, earning a median uh, 3.1% compared to 2.6 and 2.5% for one and two bedrooms. Upper Manhattan generated higher income per dollar invested elsewhere, more than anywhere else in the city. I mean, why is that? Because the prices are less or because it's still gentrifying or... 
May I, may I say one thing about equity? Yes. Okay. So so bed Okay. Hot neighborhood. Um, just a few a couple months ago, my my colleague Jim Hayes um, was on three sixty eight and three seventy gates, um, right in the heart of bed I brought buyers in. They were the first buyers in the building. They bought uh, an, a, a unit for uh, just under a million dollars. That same identical unit right next door, two months later, went in the contract for a million seventy-five thousand. So in just two months, there was seven and a half percent appreciation on the exact the identical unit next door. So that's so on the condo end, we see amazing. I mean, we just the the appreciation is ridiculous, and even even if it was, if it was just half of that, that would still be ridiculous. Um, and then as far as you know, as far as investing and getting that five percent cap rate. You 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 wanna you wanna buy. I mean, I, my my advice would be to buy bigger projects that have several units in them, townhouses and so forth, especially on the more fringe areas like Crown Heights, um, mm. East yep. Bedsty, East New York, stuff like that. The places that people don't want to touch, but that have good uh, investment potential, close to transportation. Close to transportation yes. is key everywhere. I mean, even if you look at what's happening in Lower East Side or any any neighborhood in, in this town that was, there, nothing was going on as brokers and those of us who've been around for, I mean, I've been saying to my investors for years, like years and years before Lower East Side became what it is now, I'd be like, whatever it is that you can buy there, that's where, that that's precisely where, especially my commercial investors, it's like that was the place to absolutely Not purchase. Not so much anymore, but absolutely Not so much correct. anymore, but, and, and so that's, you know, it's sort of like hindsight is 2020 lessons learned from that then and applied elsewhere, such as, mm-hmm. you know, in Bushwick or in um, Crown Heights, especially. Well, those, I think those, Crown those Heights are, is a great place yeah, to put those, your money. Those are prime, prime areas mm-hmm. right now. Absolutely. I mean, probably more hot than any of the other neighborhoods throughout the years that have gentrified. I've never seen so much buzz in those two locations, I think, since I'm in this business 15 years, including Harlem, including the East Village, including, you know, wherever. Those two places in Brooklyn Wow. But to get back to the buyer, him or herself, I think it's important to talk about what Parole was saying, how it's the type of investor. I mean, mm-hmm. another type of way, another way of looking at a type of investor is if they're all cash or if they're financing. Because if it's an investor and they are financing, you Very really have to look at the numbers differently. Like, it should be a longer-term investment. Mm-hmm. You know, you I, I always introduce my investors who are getting a mortgage that, you know, the goal is to break even, honestly, mm-hmm. with your rental income and your monthly interest principal and, you know, just common charges and taxes because, you know, long term, you're going to get the appreciation as long as you can break even every month, you're going to always be in the green at the end of the day. If you can be in the green monthly, awesome. But on the all cash side, you're always going to be in the green, obviously, hopefully, if you're investing in the right product, like what we're talking about in Brooklyn and in Harlem, where the monthlies are not high, you know, you're not getting these crazy, um, you know, luxury buildings downtown that have no tax abatement. So they have outrageously high, you know, and which taxes. is a big, big driver in Brooklyn. I mean, right. the tax abatements that are 20, 25, 30 years <laughs> is really, yeah. really driving a lot of interest there. And I think that it's the right thing. I mean, that's the city's got that one right. Well, yeah, we, I mean, we, we talked about that last week, and the tax abatement is a very big thing, and mostly in the outer boroughs these days, because there are not that many buildings left here in Manhattan that have that. And yeah, it does reduce the monthlies to a point where the investor can you know, increase his cap rate if he's looking at that. But Matt, to your point quickly before we go to break in 30 seconds, you know, it, it, it's still a matter of whether it's cash or not. 
some of the cash buyers still want to know that I'm <laughs> breaking even is great, but I still want to feel like I'm bringing money in every um, every month. I don't only want to wait until the appreciation kicks in. But anyway, we have to take a break. We are live from Blast Off Productions here in New York City. This is Good Morning New York. We're coming right back after these messages. Don't sure. go away. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel. Every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. We are back, segment three. We're here with Perul Brombat from Compass, Sean McPeak from Compass, Ryan Garson from Hall State Property, Matthew Cohen from Core Real Estate on a roll again this week, and Noah Kaplan from Nest Seekers. International. All right. So millennials <laughs> have a new weapon in in bidding wars and buying apartments for themselves. It's called uh, their parents' home equity. Let's think about that. So parents are refinancing their own homes to help their mm-hmm. children compete as all cash buyers in house in a hot house hunting market. When the purchase closes, the children can then pay their parents back. 
Have any of you seen this in your businesses yep. where par- the parents are actually mortgaging or refinancing yep. their current home or apartment in the city and giving that equity to their kids to make their down payment or in some cases to buy cash the apartments that they're looking at? I just did a transaction last year um, <clears throat> where uh, the, the parents, so it was a couple, and the parents of the daughter live in Texas. And they took out a home equity line on their house to um, finance the purchase here. But the way it was all set up is effectively for the purchase we were making here. It just looked like an all-cash deal. I haven't had that, but I over the last year, I just have a lot of my younger clients are getting extremely large gifts. Like, I've never seen them before. Um, so it, it, maybe that's a possibility of where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I think we've always been involved with parents helping children or parents gifting to children. But when I read this story, and thanks to um, Sean for tipping me off to this, when I read the story, I thought, well, okay, so we know that parents have been helping for years their children, and I use the term loosely because they're they're you know older kids, of course, helping them to buy homes. But I didn't realize that some of them were just taking money out of their own current homes or well, investments and refinancing because you don't ask the question. You don't really know. All you know is you're getting a gift from your parent, right? Well, here's the thing. Um, so I think that makes a big difference. And this was a co-op deal too. So I had to make sure oh that God. this was going to work yeah. out in a way where they're going to accept it simply as a gift, no questions asked. Right. That being said, um, I also made sure that the parents' financials in the event that that came into question, that the reason why they were actually leveraging or taking out the home equity loan is not because they did not have the all cash. It's because that was a way of just, you know, money was cheap. I mean, they got the the home equity loan under 3% or something. So it was really, really cheap for them to borrow against the house and get sort of get their money to work for them. Yeah. So it was more of an intelligent choice than, than a choice out of necessity. Yeah. I just find that my millennial buyers, um, like we're saying over the last two years especially, um, are just very creative. Like they almost, I really like working with them because they make the buying process much more, they get much more involved than other clients. I find like they, like they don't just let us or let me broker. Like they, they want to be part of the process, um, which I'm more than happy to get them involved. I actually think it makes it more enjoyable. And, um, so when there has been a lot of competition, I've actually had a few of them, um, you know, give me pictures of their life and like, give me stories that I can share with the seller and really make it personal and get involved. So, you know, outside of the gifting thing, there are other options, I guess, that millennials are exploring. Yeah, I mean, sometimes that's uh, when, when everybody gets involved in the transaction with a gift, it can like really complicate things as well. So you'll have, um, you know, a parent or a lawyer or somebody um, start, you know, injecting their negotiation tactics into, you know, whatever the, what's called the millennial buyer is, is doing. And sometimes it's really out of context and can kind of like make the deal go haywire and even lose a deal. I just lost a deal last uh, Wednesday. Uh, because of something like this, like um, it's a uh, you know parents purchasing for a child, and they don't really know the temperature of the transaction. It was a bidding war, and we we lost it just because we wouldn't disclose taxes. For the instance. you know the other thing that 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 tends to happen when parents are involved in purchasing for their child, again using the term loosely. You know the child, and I just had this. I lost a deal last week, also an almost deal. You, you, you know, the the buyer comes in with his agent, and he comes in a second time. And so after the second time, he says, "You know what? This is really a great place for me. I really want this place. Whatever." 
third visit, waiting for the mom to fly in from someplace Midwest. And the mom comes in and she comes to see the apartment and she immediately walked in and said, this is on the second floor. (laughs) Okay, and your point is what? (laughs) She loves the apartment, but she will not allow, and this is what she announced to me, I will not allow my child to buy an apartment on the second floor. We're done. Out the door she went. The broker looked at me like, oops. The buyer looked at me with his hands up in the air, "But, but, but this is what I want. No deal. My favorite is now. I, now, hold on. But yeah. so, so parents are, are, you know, she's paying for this apartment I've for her kid. I've second floor treatment too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> second floor treatment. We're going to coin that. At the end of the day, the kid wants the apartment. The mother says no. Off they go. Done. I mean, the only worse situation is when a parent, and this is where the seller's broker should be better at, you know, just their job in general. Um, but the, when they, when they, the, the buyer, the, the child, sorry, let's use terms. The child comes once or twice. They make an offer. They get it accepted. There's a contract out. And then the parent comes oh, once the contract's yeah. out. Like, who is doing the decision making there? Because right. I want to know. I mean, I, there was, I had a, parent buying for one of my clients last year and it was the last unit in the new development and there was like 20 people bidding on it and so my my client who's the child says to me yeah my mom's traveling so she's gonna come you know we're, we're hoping to like get this moving before she comes and I'm like get what moving because I'm not letting you get a contract out until she sees it I was like well that's not, not even true like not happening you're absolutely correct and I've done the same thing a few times in the past because it's it's true tragedy if a con- because you're wasting everybody's time now including attorneys the, the contracts are drawn negotiations have started and then someone flies in from out of town and says oh well I was just not going to work. say that I, I actually draw that line really far way ahead in the process than even getting to accepted offers I mean I'm talking if there's parents helping with the purchase my one of the first questions I ask during the first time that I take them out to show I don't do it in a way where you don't have the rapport and the trust factor. But once I've sort of established a relationship, my first question is, given your parents are helping you, or do they need to approve this? Who's the decision maker? If you don't know who the decision maker is, you're Mm -hmm. not doing your job. Mm -hmm. So that's something that needs to be established ahead of time. Granted, there are still people who, you know, pound their chest and say, I am the decision maker. Absolutely, absolutely. And then mommy dear shows up and it's a whole <laughs> yeah. different story. But, you know, really trying to mitigate that as early as I possible. I will tell you a quick is, little is story before smart. we move on to the next topic. I had a situation many years ago in Chelsea where the kid, the mother was buying for the kid, but the kid had full power to pick his own place with his broker, or whatever. So we go into a deal, contract is out, contract is signed. Uh, board package is submitted. It's a, a co-op. So now, because mom is buying with the son, uh, she had to be involved in the board in the board package, and she also had to be involved in the board interview. So of course, she's never been to the apartment before. She flies in the night before the board interview. Oh, good God! <laughs> oh, good God! You use the term, mommy dearest. Well, she rode in on her horse, and she came in, and she sat in front of the board and told her this board. Sure, it wasn't a broom. Oh, no. <laughs> I was trying. To, I was trying to be nice, and because she had seen the apartment in the building for the first time, it was it, it, it's a it's a, a elevator building in Chelsea. It's it's not luxurious. It's not whatever. And she proceeded to tell the board members in the interview what she thinks they need to do to fix this building, to clean up this building, and to blah, blah, blah. Uh, declined. Wow. Of course. Wow. 
Of course. I had a I had a boy, I had a similar situation, but the boyfriend came to the interview and asked if he could grow a pot on the rooftop. <sighs> oh. Yikes! Who yes. are you dealing what? with? Like what? And this is not only about money. I mean, m- like my parents didn't help me buy, but they might as well have because I their opinion is buying in and of itself. Like I, I would like a place and they, they'd have to come see cause they're my Jewish parents. Like, of course they have to see everything and improve everything and they would hate every place. I Matt, find. your mom's and listening. Watch I know. It. I love you, mom. And then she, she, so, so when I found the right place, I was like, I love you parents, but you're coming after I go into contract. <laughs> parents will always be parents. That's just what it is. And that's why we love them. Anyway, moving on. A fed up renter was so desperate to buy his first apartment. He paid the difference between the appraisal and the closing uh, price out of pocket. Now, obviously, the appraisal came in low. There was a bidding war where the neighbor wanted to also buy it. The broker said, at the end of the day, the market is judged by what the buyer is willing to pay. When the appraisal came in lower, the buyer ended up taking the difference out of his pocket with no issues and just paying the difference. The apartment was asking $599,000, and he had the winning bid at $635,000. So he took $35,000 out of his pocket. Um, or so to pay the difference. You know, have you seen this in your in your travels in this business? I mean, that's quite a you know a problem, or can be. Um, I, I found, have not. I found different things lately. The I found a lot of people instead of doing. Um, contingent or non-contingent on financing, they're actually doing appraisal contingencies. Yes. I find that, and they're detailed. Like, um, But I have an issue with those. But anyway, go ahead. Well, I, I do to a certain extent. I actually, lately, I find that attorneys are doing them in a very smart manner, especially when the unit is very popular and there's a lot of bidders because if, the, if, if something is going above asking, especially in like a rising Brooklyn market, I would be careful if you're getting a mortgage and you're going to make it non-contingent because what if the appraisal comes in, you know, $100,000 less than what you're paying. That's a big problem. So I think it's smart, actually, to do an appraisal. So I just done a listing of mine had a bidding war in Williamsburg, and I deliberately priced it low because I knew it was one of those places where people were going to jump and then outbid each other. Um, When the offers came in, I had, I think, six offers. This was a few months ago, so I'm forgetting a bit, but I think it was, I had six or seven offers. And um, really what I looked at was the contingency factor along with um, the money. And ultimately, the the offer that we accepted, I allowed them to have a 60% um, mortgage contingency, and that was it. So I think that as brokers on the seller side, you know, one of the smart thing to do, smart things to do during a bidding war is not lose your seller the highest bid, but just mitigate the contingency such that it works out to everybody's favor. I, I, I think appraisals have been coming in fairly decently these days. I haven't had a problem with them for a very long time, but I think in bidding war situations, that's where banks are getting a little concerned and a little nervous because. I think they're beginning to feel like, you know, why is this happening? Because it doesn't it's not it's not routine anymore like it was for a very long time. And so they're thinking, well, maybe this is uh, something that we need to be a little cautious about because the value may not be there if the market dips just a little bit. We've got to take a break, unfortunately, Matt. We'll come back to you in a minute. We're live from Blast Off Productions here in New York. This is Good Morning New York. We will come right back after these messages. Don't touch my microphone. Don't go away. <laughs> The 
Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. It's not easy to make it big in New York City. It's even harder to sustain that success for decades. However, two teams have defied those odds due to their formulas for success. Both have all-star rosters performing at the top of their game. Each have an undying commitment to greatness, a willingness to evolve, superior training programs, and ownership that invests heavily in their products. It only seemed natural for the world's most valuable sports brand to partner with Halstead, a market leader in the New York metro area, and now proudly serving as the official luxury real estate firm of the New York Yankees. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain inspiring really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll free in North America at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Now, back to the show. So, in a city packed to the gills with triplex no. penthouses, sprawling lofts, and charming brownstones, it seems that finding a great home should be as easy as ordering dinner, as I said at the top of the show. But any season New Yorker will tell you, however, that finding a place in the city that's as good as you think it is because of what you see on screen on your computer, it really is not so easy. So question to you all, because we've seen we see so many apartments in our in our travels throughout the day. What's the worst apartment you've ever seen? Based on it looking great on the internet, looking great on somebody's website, and then you walk into this place and you say, whoops. I mean, the bait and switches. That happens all the time. I can't even count. Ah, It happens all the time. And how many times do we tell people, of course, they don't want to listen or take our advice, don't look at pictures. If anything, look at the floor plan. And if the floor plan works for you, you go and visit the apartment and you then you make your judgment call or whatever. To me, again, it's doing our job, though, because for me, my my process is I'll I'll do the first pick of the apartments that they should be looking at. I send those out. I say, okay, of this list, take take tell me what you want to see. Now, if they go on Street Easy or whatever and decide that they want to see something, I then look at the floor plan, look at the pictures, understand where the, whether the vin- windows have any sort of view whatsoever or not, et cetera. Look at the floors. You know, I mean, there's it's an easy, for us, it's easy because we've got a trained eye. Um, and then I go back and just send them a message or call them and say, look, you know, this is what I think of this. Did you notice that this doesn't have a window? Did you see how that mezzanine is broken up? Like whatever it is. Um, and then if they still want to see it, then it's on them. You're right about the trained eye because, you know, we look at floor plans sometimes and I, or even just look at a picture and it might look great. But to our trained eye, I see all the imperfections just at a quick glance at a picture of a living room, of a kitchen, of a Absolutely. whatever. And sometimes it's all glossed up and it looks wonderful. But I know it's not. But buyers obviously don't catch that. They say, oh, this looks wonderful or, oh, this is wonderful. You know, I need to go and see this. And when they walk in, it's like. It's almost like it should be empty because they can't see anything that they thought they were coming to see. So I just wanted to say that on the typical DSLR camera that people shoot with, the uh, the lens is 18 millimeters by 55, 55 millimeters. So 18 by 55. I think 
um, and it's pretty standard in the industry that the wide angle lens um, is set to about 17 millimeters. So that's what you're seeing every time you look at a photo, a real estate photo. You're looking, I think, about at 17 millimeters wide, whatever the room is. Wow, that's interesting. It's and it, it's sort of and and they don't they don't go down to ten because ten would be like way too wide. Um, you start seeing uh, distortion on the edges, but seventeen's about the standard. So it sort of it always opens up a room. You learn something every day. I saw an apartment the other day with a client that I've been working with for years, and it checked all the boxes. We were so excited. We go up to the apartment. The floors were slanted, and they creaked. Total deal breaker. Now, how do you see that in a picture, right? You, you don't. And and I've had that situation in a new construction building that I will not mention, but there are a few floors in this building that are slanted because the concrete was messed up when they were pouring it in a brand new building. Well, I'll never photograph this and it looks great. I'll never forget that my mentor in the industry years ago said to me, you want your, when you start getting listings, you want your photos to be great, but not too great. Because mm-hmm. if they're too great, people will come in and they'll say, Oh, the photos are so much better. You want people to come into an apartment and say, the photos don't do this place justice. Well, there's a lot of brokers who will try to like blur out a window like, that yeah. is, like faces a wall or something. And then there's like just there's just editing giveaways and photos that you can mm-hmm. kind of tell that are going to turn your buyer off when you walk in. I mean, my philosophy is not to create any deception whatsoever um, with the photos or listing description or anything. So when you see like a photo and just looks like a beam of light coming through the window, you know that that window is looking at something that's not very safe. So now that we're in the buyer's mind, in the buyer's head, and they're they're searching at, you know, two o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the afternoon while they're at work, supposed to be working, but they're looking at real estate because they love to do this. It's everybody's pastime. And we just got past the picture issue, but what about neighborhoods? You know, how how does do your buyers, you know, kind of sift through all these wonderful neighborhoods, whether they're in Brooklyn, emerging markets in Brooklyn, established markets in Brooklyn, and all of Manhattan, which I would say today pretty much is all established or, or gentrified. How do they come up with a neighborhood choice? Well, Noah and I both have a bunch to say about this, so we'll do it really quickly. Um, I think in Manhattan, I'm sure I'm sure he'll, he'll talk about Brooklyn. So in Manhattan, I always feel um, definitely walk around some of the streets. You don't have to walk around all of them, but for example, you know, I always find the East Village to be a fun neighborhood to talk to clients about because they see East Village and they're like. Ugh, Alphabet City, or like I'm gonna deal with NYU students. And well, this that's is different. So, but then we'll walk around the neighborhood, and it says East Village. So don't automatically assume because it could be like you know Astor Place, which is gorgeous, and like the northwest side of the East Village. And just because it says East Village on Treaties, it doesn't mean it's deep into Alphabet City. Absolutely. Or or you know Harlem is like now you know everything from like 110th all the way to 150th is considered Central Harlem on Street Easy. Like, don't judge just because it says Central Harlem. I mean, parts of Central Harlem around City College are unbelievable just because they're in the 130s. Don't say it's bad because it's over 120. Well, yeah, I think showing client a neighborhood and just taking them down the right streets and just having the presence of mind to know where not to take them. For instance, Chelsea, if you walk them down 25th Street between certain avenues, you know what happens and, you know, I've had but, I've had I've had sixty five year old clients get catcalled on certain streets that yeah. you know I know not yes. to take them down because it's not indicative of what the neighborhood really is. But but but, but let's peel this back a little bit. So so getting back to how do they choose a neighborhood? I, I get what all of you are saying, yeah. but what what's the process that they go through? That I want to live in Crown Heights. I want to live in Harlem. I want to live in in Soho. I want to live in Tribeca. 
how do they get to that point? And again, we all work with buyers and renters, right. so we they've got to figure out somehow where they want to be. I think, like I think transportation, transportation, transportation. Um, publicity, yeah. I, I find like recently there's been a lot of publicity about cleaning up the Gowanus Canal. Like people yeah, yeah, hear right. about that, they read about that. I mean, and their friends, like where their friends and family live. I always find that that's a big I also find that life planning, I mean, you know, the school district, even if they don't have kids, they're kind of looking to grow into well, a school district, yeah, appreciation. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes people will sacrifice certain things like, Gowanus is a good example. They'll, you know, maybe save some money by moving across the beautiful river um, from Park Slope <laughs> into Gowanus and save a couple bucks and also, you know, see the neighborhood emerging. It's like a mini Williamsburg there right now. So we've got a few minutes left. So what are the tips that you guys give your buyers or renters? Because everybody is searching for a home either way. What are the tips you give them when you first meet them or even if you know them for a while? in helping them to try and find that perfect home. We all know there is no perfect home, and we all know that probably the home that you do pick isn't going to be your lifelong residence, but at least for a few years, it's going to be that perfect home for you for now. What what kind of tips or advice do you give these people? Have a great relationship with your broker. <laughs> <laughs> well, that goes without saying. No, it's true. You know, really get close. I, I think that that's honestly a really great piece of advice. I, I always say you're going to love me in the beginning of this and you're going to hate me towards the end of it. So, like, let's just get deep now, you know? I think that's one of the best I ways. think, um, <laughs> you know, just, just planning. <laughs> I, you know, one of the things I always tell people is my philosophy and approach to buying real estate is you need to plan for a very bad market because markets change. And if we just stick to the fundamentals of location and, you know, what makes an apartment valuable, um, even you know, when the storm comes and there's always a storm that you're going to survive and do just fine with your investment. So I just look for stuff that's always going to, you know, stay valuable, even if the market goes to hell, that you're always going to have something that I'll rent or sell. And that's very important because it's about value. And it's going back to the investor that we talked about earlier. You buy something and you know that there is going to be value and appreciation value today but appreciation down the road you know that you're 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 getting into a sound investment versus just saying and we've all been there probably you know oh i like this apartment i'm just going to buy it without really without too much thinking yeah i would i would say that the main thing that i i always tell buyers is you know you want to have yourself like sort of a wish list and the wish list includes the priorities about what's important to you, right? And you want to make sure that the whatever you're picking in the end um, sort of tacks off the the top things on the wish list, um, because you know in a place like New York where there's just so many neighborhoods, there's just so much product, um, there's so many options. You have to start the buyer themselves, the client has to start really narrowing down. Hey, what's really important to me? Location, one of those things. Also, maybe space or maybe actual, you know, sunlight in the windows. Whereas someone else doesn't mind being right next to a, a brick wall. It really doesn't matter. So, yeah. I mean, the, yeah, their life needs are are definitely the top priority. But I, I personally just try to instill an investor's mindset because nobody's going to be happy if they're going to, you know, be paying the difference on a loan or something like that if they're underwater. At, you know, when they're ready to sell or when they have to sell or something like that. So I always try to just instill that investment mindset and kind of educate them on that part of the process because even if it's not important to them and they just have, you know, a wish list, it's really um, it's really important that they make uh, smart moves with their money because they're going to, you know, pay the price. All right, we've got to leave it there, guys. We are out of time. That's our show for today. 
here in New York, thanks to my guest, Berto Antoniano, our title specialist. Thank Let's you for coming. It. See you again. Thank you for having Until me. next time, be kind to one another. For all of us at Voice America all around the world, thanks for joining us, and I will see you next week. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones.